This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. That can be found on page 810 of the Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning because of his matchless blood, the work that he accomplished, the forgiving grace that he has afforded in himself. God, we come with boldness this morning into your presence as those who you have chosen, adopted, called, those who are experiencing your grace to be transformed into your likeness. God, this morning, I ask that you would come and minister to us by your word. Lord Jesus, we ask you that this morning you would um, speak to us. Would you align our hearts to yours? God, would you allow us to delight in your ways and lift high your purposes? God, I even ask, um, as we begin, God, even as, as, as those words were read, I, I don't know what happens in people's hearts as we come to this subject. But Spirit of God, you are the great knower of souls. You search all things. So you know exactly what we need this morning. You know who needs comfort. You know who needs conviction. You know who needs a hard word, you know who needs um, a word to come and invite. God, we just submit ourselves to you. We say your ways are good, and so we want them, no matter what that means, no matter the places where that confronts us, no matter the places where um, that brings up hard places in our past, no matter... I just even think we, we prayed this morning and uh, Ricky prayed for uh, kids who have walked through divorce, who feel this in their bones in a really powerful way. God, you know every single heart in this room. Would you come and move among us? Would you be like the physician of our souls that comes and brings healing, comes and cuts out places 
that are distorted in us, that are hurting us, that are killing us. God, would you come and realign us to yourself in every single place? We want what you want. So would you come and speak, bring a spirit of revelation, inspire our hearts. Would you allure our hearts to the goodness of your ways? Would you conform us to who you are and what you are about? And would you give grace upon the speaking and upon the hearing of your word? We ask in Jesus's name and for his glory. Amen. Okay. So as we jump in, I just want to give a brief review of where we're at. Uh, and then we're going we're gonna to dive into the text that we heard read this morning on divorce and honoring the marriage covenant and its place within the Sermon on the Mount. So letter A here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you've heard this week after week, but Jesus is inviting his disciples into a greater experience of what he calls the blessed life, right? The life marked by uh, his satisfaction, satisfaction and wholeness in him, full, whole, complete, This is centered around the eight Beatitudes that uh, begin the Sermon on the Mount, which are the most succinct portrait of what Jesus values. These are the value system of the kingdom of heaven made known to us. Now, the presence and the growth of these virtues are the mark of our discipleship. So we see that these uh, growing graces in our lives, as they're cultivated and grown and made known in our lives, this is the mark of discipleship and the measure of true and lasting greatness. In Matthew 5, 21 to 48, Jesus moves and he begins to outline six areas that we need to seek to actively resist as we desire to pursue Jesus in wholehearted obedience. And wholehearted obedience Uh, is a real simple definition is just not having, not harboring, or uh, being complacent with any area of known sin in our lives. It's, It's when Jesus reveals something to us and he puts his finger on it and says, uh, I want you to pursue obedience here. We don't say, no, not that part. This doesn't mean victory in every area. It doesn't mean that we have uh, full maturity there. We might still stumble and we might still uh, be a work in progress there, but it means that we're seeking to partner with God's grace through the Holy Spirit as we pursue him. So his call for us is to be whole or complete like the Father in heaven and embody an internal righteousness that surpasses the outward righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. These six commandments of Jesus are intended to, and I I don't want us to miss this anytime we're looking at them. These six statements are intended to highlight the severity of sin in our lives. That's the first thing that it's important to like uh, put in front of us. Sin in, in the economy of God is like a spiritual cancer. It can't be left undealt with. It cannot be left harbored or coddled or being complacent with it. It has to be pursued to live in the light before our God because of what it does, both in our lives and in relationships and in society. So we see that there is a severity of sin and these six statements, these six invitations are meant to actually maximize our joy. Now, this is really important, and it will be really important as we hear these difficult words from Jesus this morning, that Jesus is not holding out on us. 
Jesus isn't setting up some boundary around our lives for an arbitrary reason because he doesn't want us to be whole. He longs for your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate joy, your ultimate fulfillment. And these two realities have to be held in front of us as we come to this this morning. So before we dive into the text itself, I want to set the stage for a discussion on divorce. Divorce is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult pastoral subjects to discuss and navigate in our contemporary moment. There's an author uh, who, in his book, he highlights that divorce in pastoral ministry is like the third rail, right? It's the thing that nobody wants to touch. The first two are what the train runs on. The third one's going to kill you if you touch it. He says, divorce and remarriage in pastoral ministry is like the third rail. It is a hard subject to navigate. It's difficult. Uh, So I want to do some things to set the table for us. Although there's a lot of factors that lead to this in our moment, we have to understand that any sermon on divorce may just raise as many questions that it answers, right? Like that might be a reality. We might raise questions in your soul that need to be navigated with pastoral wisdom, not answer every one of them. Look at letter B. Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 is not a comprehensive pastoral teaching on the subject. He's not seeking to work out all of the implications of walking through difficulty in marriage in a broken and fallen world. So what Jesus isn't doing here is giving us the strategies or uh, the, the means by which to cultivate health in a marriage. He doesn't talk about that at all. He doesn't talk about what do you do if you find yourself in a marriage that feels hopeless, right? He's not giving those tools to his hearers in this moment. There's something else that he's actually trying to do. Jesus, is teach, his teaching is intended, I want you to catch this. There's two things that Jesus is doing here. He is elevating the marriage covenant. So the first thing that Jesus is doing is actually elevating in the midst of his hearers the reality of the marriage covenant, and he is seeking to situate it as an expression of costly discipleship. Have you ever thought about why this is in the Sermon on the Mount? Why is this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It feels at times like this kind of comes out of left field. We're talking about anger. We're talking about lust. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about marriage. I think Jesus' desire here is to elevate the marriage covenant, and we'll get into the cultural context that he's speaking into, and to situate this as an expression of costly discipleship. And so that's my hope this morning, is to look at those two realities. Look at letter C. There are many reasons that this has become a difficult topic to address in our current moment. There's a lot of factors at play when we seek to look at the issue of divorce and remarriage, and the sum of these realities charges the situation and raises emotions. I I want you all to know that I'm aware that this is a charged situation, right? Like I've had three or four conversations this week with different contexts talking about this, and every time I put it into the room, emotions go high and the situation gets charged immediately. Okay, so we're just gonna name that and acknowledge that, and 
believe that God's word has beautiful things to give us even in that place. But let's look at some of these reasons. These kind of, think about this as like a stew or something, right? Like you put all of these things into a pot, put it on simmer for 50 years, and you find the context that we find ourselves in right now that makes this a really hard, really charged, really emotional uh, topic. First, we have 50 years of no-fault divorce in our nation. Since the introduction of no-fault divorce in California in 1969, our society has lived under a cloudy and difficult reality of navigating our relationship to divorce. This has led to a widespread devaluing of marriage in our society. And we have to understand and rightly address this biblically in any discussion about divorce. Okay, so that's one reality. We have been uh, catechized in a world that has normal, like made normal no-fault divorce. Okay, so that's, that's one reality. Number two, there is a near universal effect. Because of the growing widespread nature of this, very few people in our contemporary world remain unaffected by it. Hey, here's the reality. Uh, it affects real people, real lives, and I meant to put real families, but I put real lives twice. I guess that's how important it is. Uh, hey, like, there's, there's not anybody in this room, probably, that is unaffected by this. Okay, so that, we have to just acknowledge that reality, right? This doesn't leave us unscathed. Like we all know and have faced and have walked through and find difficult places where we bring reality into this, right? Like real people, real lives, real families. Okay, so that's, that, we put that in the pot. The third thing we put in the pot is the destruction that this brings on families and generations, right? We don't need statistics. I don't need to stand up here and rattle off statistics because what statistics are going to do in this moment is depersonalize it, right? We don't need statistics. We know that the effects of this in our society have led to real devastation, real hurt, real pain, real effects. Many of us in the room have seen firsthand the effects of divorce, not just in the lives of those who walk through it, but lives of children and even future generations. Okay, so number four, a growing misunderstanding of the purpose of marriage. Okay, so at the same time as no-fault divorce gets put into the books, we see the changing tides of the sexual revolution come crashing down on our society. So for nearly 60 years, the idea of what constitutes a marriage and what the purpose of marriage are have been broken down and brought into confusion. Hey, do you, have you ever thought about why is divorce a hard topic to talk about? It's because we're confused about marriage. There's a lot of realities that this, this gets added into it, right? We have, we're confused. And this is not just something that we started in the last couple years, right? This is uh, decades and decades of systematic, like, catechizing to devalue the purpose of marriage, cloudy it, muddy it, make it confusing as to what it is and why and who can participate and all of that stuff. And that is the waters we swim in. And we just have to be aware of that. 
we have to acknowledge that we bring internal realities to this. And I'm just going to pause here for a second. Paul in Romans 12 is really aware that we have this reality, not, not in this situation or this topic exactly, but he tells us, hey, don't be conformed to the spirit of this world or the patterns of this age. Meaning this is a temptation for all Christians at all times that we live in a moment and the water we swim in, we have a hard time separating ourselves from it. So we have to renew our minds with the truth of God, okay? So the fifth thing, we have a misunderstanding of a biblical definition of love. Through media and the cultural shift, the concept and the value of love has been changed in our contemporary world. Okay, so this, this is like moving from any kind of duty-based or self-giving expression as love to a fulfillment-oriented or me-centered or how it makes me feel a very subjective understanding. We've ingested these concepts of happiness that shape and cloud our beliefs and emotions. Just think about every movie, every TV show, Every, every uh, story you've heard has attempted to put that concept of happiness into you, right? It's the, it's the Jerry Maguire thing, right? The you complete me idea. It's this subjective, self-satisfied understanding of what love is that has been adopted and ingested into us, right? So we've kind of got our work cut out for us. Look at the top of page two. As in our day, the contemporary scene of Jesus's teaching had greatly devalued marital fidelity. The teaching in Roman, Greek, and Jewish cultures had grown fairly accustomed to lax views on the covenant of marriage. And it's into this situation that Jesus is teaching. Look at letter F. In coming to such topics, we must ask God for greater grace to lay down our conceptions our preconceived ideas and ask him to order our lives around his word and his truth, right? Jesus's commandments are not burdensome. They're invitations to more readily experience what it means to be fully alive. When all is said and done, we want to be a people who stand with Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that there are times when testings, trials, and oppositions crash in against his people. And it's ultimately those that hear and obey his teachings that will have sure and steady foundations. And I want to name this. This is not a popular teaching, right? It's not a popular teaching even in the church. And it's going to get way less popular. I promise you, right? This is going to get way harder to put our lot in with Jesus uh, in years to come. Right? And so I want us to lovingly, compassionately, joyfully, humbly submit ourselves up under what Jesus is teaching and ask him to shape us to his truth, not for us to shape it around what we desire. Okay? We want this kind of foundation. Therefore, we must be willing to walk in the way of Jesus, choosing to believe that they are the only way to experience true and lasting life, even when they are costly and walked out with great difficulty. Okay, so Jesus is teaching. 
The third statement that he gets to about the law or the teaching of his day or sin takes a slightly different and much shorter form than the other statements. In this statement, Jesus addresses a common debate that had been happening among the rabbis about the nature of divorce that would have been uh, familiar to his hearers. At the heart of Jesus' teaching is an attack on a prevailing heart posture regarding marriage. At the time of Jesus' teaching, the rabbis of the day had fallen into two specific schools uh, related to Moses' instructions about divorce. So back in Deuteronomy 24, Moses in the law makes a provision uh, for uh, a certain type of divorce. And really the point of Deuteronomy 24 is to uh, keep this, it's, it's to heighten the severity of what's happening in divorce and create a context where a man who puts his wife away through divorce does not seek to remarry her later. Okay, so there's, there's a very particular purpose in it. But one school attempts to interpret Moses' teaching literally, while the other school sought to provide a wide range for permissible divorce within the instruction of Moses. So the, 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 the hyper-lax uh, uh, view of it had become really normative in Jesus' day. Right? There, was, there was teaching of some rabbinic schools where the grounds for divorce could be something as insignificant as your wife burned your toast. Okay, So this is the context into which Jesus is speaking. So to many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the injunction for divorce was often expanded to almost any reason as long as the man went through the legal process to provide a certificate of divorce. This is what Jesus is meaning when he says says this here in verse 31. Look at it again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what they're talking about here is they're emphasizing the reasons or they're devaluing the marriage covenant by going, it kind of doesn't matter what the reason is as long as you go through the outward processes. Right? So the Pharisees were trying to live in accordance with God's law. They wanted to present themselves as those who were faithful and upright before him. And so they're finding all of these loopholes in the law to go, man, as long as you go through the right legal process, it really doesn't matter the reason. And Jesus is seeking to undermine that heart disposition. That's where he's getting at here. Jesus, letter E, is attempting to reconfigure the nature of sin before God, similar to anger and lust. Demonstrate that this is an invitation to his disciples to embody a greater righteousness than was being taught by the religious leaders of his day. So what Jesus is actually getting at here, they're going, hey, we've heard it talked about that all you have to do to get a divorce is go through the legal process. And Jesus is highlighting that there's actually something deeper going on. And he wants to, like he's doing at every single step in the earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount, get to the heart. And he's going, hey, it's not just about going through the outward process. There's something going on in the heart that you all are already outside of what God desires because all you think you have to do is go through these external hoops. And anything is permissible at that point. Jesus is then elevating the marriage covenant 
in the minds of his hearers. Whereas they had become fixated with the legal justifications for divorce, Jesus wanted to reorient their thinking around the beauty and glory of marriage. So Jesus is addressing the reality that a legal divorce, a certificate of divorce, in the way that it had been commonly held by the teachers of the day, did not ultimately end the union in the eyes of God. So look at the top of page three. So that's what Jesus is getting at. So I think to drill in and understand the like heart nuance of what Jesus is getting to, we need to talk about what he's doing in elevating the marriage covenant. To rightly understand the nature of this teaching, we have to seek to situate and understand the high importance on the marriage covenant within the testimony of scripture. The biblical witness of marriage is that it is an institution given by God to be experienced between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant together. We are often somewhat like the Pharisees. I just want this to hit us, right? Like we're often somewhat like the Pharisees and quick to run and try to discuss exceptions and what qualifies and what doesn't qualify and all those things without first spending time unapologetically affirming God's ideal for one man and one woman to remain married until death parts them. I want us to feel that, right? The the overwhelming normal picture of the scripture is that marriage is between a man and a woman for life. That's the picture that is put out in front of us. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus again seeks to correct the prevailing attitudes toward marriage by demonstrating the solemn and holy nature of the marriage covenant. uh, Matthew 19 is kind of like a follow-up to these two sentences in the Sermon on the Mount, helpful to see what is in the heart of Jesus. In this situation, the Pharisees come up to him and tested him by asking, I thought, I, I watched a video of a guy answering a question about divorce and remarriage this week, and he went to this, and he says, I feel like this is a test question often, so uh, in a similar way. They come to him, and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Again, see that there. This is the prevailing view of the world at the moment. Can we divorce our wives for any reason whatsoever? And Jesus answers, you have not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here we see several realities that we need to have in order to elevate the marriage covenant in our eyes. First thing we have to see here is marriage is God's idea. Hey, we didn't come up with this. This isn't some old, stodgy, conservative way of thinking about things. God came up with this. He says when he made them male and female, there was a purpose that they were to depart from their father and mother, come together and be joined as one. This is God's idea. This is built into the very fabric of creation. The institution of marriage is not created by people, but by God. 
Because of this, this isn't for our sermon this morning, but it does really matter in our cultural moment. Because God created this, he gets to define what it is, who it's between, and how it functions. Okay? We don't get to define that. He gets to define that. He made it up. It's his idea. That's, that's first point number one. Point number two that we can derive from this is in marriage, two become one. This is one of the mysterious and profound realities of marriage in the economy of God's creation. When a man and woman come together in marriage, there is a new reality that is created between them. Where there used to be two, now there is one. There used to be two, now there is one. Right? There's two becoming one in this union. The third thing is this is a work accomplished by God. Jesus declares that in the act of marriage, God himself is creating something. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus here says what God joined together, right? This isn't just, I, I love getting to do this when I, when I perform a wedding. I make it very clear that God himself is doing something, right? We're coming and we're giving vows and we're making commitments to one another. We're, we're sharing our love for one another. There's all sorts of things that the couple does on their wedding day, right? They've spent time and energy and money and tears and laughing and all this kind of stuff, anxiety, making this big event happen and God is doing something in it. This is like, this is why the, the Catholic Church, for all of its history, has considered marriage sacramental. Because God creates something in the midst of the natural uh, act. Just like when we come to the table, we believe that the natural elements point to something greater. This covenant is a, a vehicle and a vessel by which God himself is doing something. It's beautiful. So beyond that, look at letter D. We know from elsewhere in scripture that God has determined that marriage serve as a picture of a greater reality, namely a tangible picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So why did God come up with this institution in the first place? Why did he make it, right? Why is it baked into the fabric of creation and the order of creation? Why does he care to define who it's between and how long it lasts and all of those things? He does that because it's meant to be a picture of something beyond itself. It's not supposed to be the thing by which I find completion or satisfaction or happiness or any of those things. Those might be a beautiful byproduct of it, but this is meant to be a picture of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's unending, undying love for his bride. That is what gets put on display in this covenant, right? So when Jesus goes, hey, fellas in the room who are asking the question, can I just put my wife away for any reason because I fell out of love with her or I'm not compatible with her any longer or whatever the reason might be, he goes, you don't understand what is really going on here. You don't understand what it's a picture of in my heart. 
You don't understand the reality, the height, the elevation of this in my purposes. That's what Jesus wants to impress upon his hearers. The final picture of the scriptures is the image of a wedding feast. Don't miss this. God in his perfect and glorious sovereignty describes the moment when he perfectly redeems and restores everything to the moment a prepared bride and a longing bridegroom come together. This intention of God's heart was to put on display, yes, in weakness, yes, in difficulty, yes, in immaturity, something of his character, something of his commitment, something of his love. This is what he's inviting his disciples to see and to walk in by his grace. Look at letter G. As in Jesus's day, we must ask God to confront our highly relaxed view of marriage and the standard of expectations for what it means to regain the high calling of marital fidelity as a vocation in the church. This requires that we seek to, in our midst, by the grace of God, elevate and honor the sanctity of the marriage covenant. We must seek by God's grace to hold up, both in our weak discipleship and in our faithfulness to it, the glory of God's good design in marriage. So Jesus elevates the marriage covenant. And he says, this is, this is the norm. This is reality here. But there are teachings in scripture and throughout the history of the Protestant church that give allowances or permissions or exceptions to Jesus's high teaching on fidelity to the marriage covenant. These exceptions are granted as permissions, not as commandments. These aren't given as a commandment to us. They're given as permissions by the Lord because he understands there are situations in which people sin in consistent and unrepentant ways that violate and break the covenant. So Jesus in Matthew 19 goes on, right? When he says, hey, this isn't what, was, what it was meant to be. From the beginning, it was one man, one woman. They come together. They become one flesh. What God joins together, don't let anybody separate. The Pharisees come back and go, well, then why did Moses command us to divorce our wives? Why did he, why did he give that commandment then? And Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of what Moses was doing and gives a really profound theological pastoral hermeneutic for how to walk through this. He says to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed this. Now, I, I don't want you to miss that either. They come and say, why did Moses command this? And Jesus doesn't say, Moses commanded this. He says, hey, Moses allowed this. God allowed Moses to provide a provision in order for a reason. Why? Because of the hardness of heart. So God understands there's situations and places where consistent and persistent unrepentant sin so violates the union and the covenant that there is provision. And these are 
uh, laid out for us in the scripture. The first is the one that Jesus references here in his teaching, which is sexual immorality. The reason Jesus gave for the breaking of the marriage covenant was sexual infidelity. This breaks the covenant union and is permissible grounds for divorce. Now, sexual immorality does not necessitate divorce. There are wonderful and beautiful stories of redemption and God's power to bring reconciliation and uh, renewal to marriages that have experienced the destructive effects of sexual infidelity. But Jesus understands the reality of the hardness of the human heart and walking through those situations and says uh, that there is a allowance for this with regards to sexual immorality. The second one has to do with willful desertion. This has been adopted through much of Protestant history uh, and is derived from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the range of how to interpret this provision has varied throughout different times in the church's life. And there's different opinions as to what qualifies this and how to walk through this. Today, because that's not my text today, I cannot cover all the details, nuance, pastoral wisdom required to navigate that. I I do want to say two things, though. Two things really important. Number one, if you're in the room and you find yourself in the spot where divorce is on the table in your heart or mind, in your marriage, please bring your community and your pastors into that as soon as possible, right? We, we love you. We love your marriage. We, we long for you to walk that out with other people. And let me encourage you to not walk it out with other people that are just trying to like bolster up uh, your desire for an out. Walk with people who will open the scriptures with you, who will weep with you, who will cry with you, who will pray with you, who will suffer long with you, who will challenge you, who will comfort you. Right? The Westminster Confession of Faith, when they talk about the exceptions in it, they say that we shouldn't make these decisions on our own. And they start the, the article on this with, because of our own propensity to study out things that affirm what we already want, is what they're saying. So please bring people into that really quickly. Please walk through that with others in your life, in the light, so we can open the word together. Again, cry together, pray together, uh, uh, shepherd and counsel together. Okay, so that's area number one. Area number two. If you're in the room and you're in a situation where there's fear of potential uh, physical danger, please bring that to the light immediately. God's given authority to his church and to the state to provide protection and provision in those situations. So bring that to the light quickly, immediately, please that we can walk there with you. So those are the provisions that God makes. Look at letter D, though. 
It must be noted that all divorce grieves the heart of God. To walk through situations that lead to divorce requires that we enter into a spirit of mourning as those who recognize and believe this is not the way that it should be. And this is different than like walking in a spirit of condemnation or shame, like as walking out difficult situations or if you have divorce in your past. This isn't uh, mourning with some sort of condemnation and shame. This is lamenting that this is not the way that it should be. And this is one place in which all of us are invited into lamenting that this is not the way that it should be. We all have those places in our lives, right? Every, every area of sin and uh, darkness invites us to mourn and weep and lament for the day when Jesus will make all things new. Okay, so that's, that's an important reality. So as we bring this to a close, try to tie it up a little bit, let me give you six, I think, principles for pursuing costly discipleship in this area. Because Jesus is, again, elevating the marriage covenant. He wants us to honor it and, and, and understand its importance. And he's inviting us into costly discipleship. Honor the marriage covenant. That's, that's principle number one. We must, as a family, seek to hold a biblical view of marriage in high regard and honor it before the Lord. This is Hebrews 13, right? This, and this, this can be whether you're married, whether you're single, like we long to be a people who honor what God honors, right? We, we want to think about things the way that he thinks about them. We want to see them the way that he sees them. Now, this will include shaping our minds and letting our minds be shaped, our affections, our hearts around what Jesus calls good and beautiful with regards to marriage and to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Again, this is way back to the early, early parts. We have been catechized in a worldview where no-fault divorce and self-fulfilling love have kind of indoctrinated us. Right? And so a thought of being unhappy rails against so much of who we are. And we need to honor what God honors. Okay, second principle. Seek to pursue a soft heart in the grace of God. Jesus' teaching on marriage is about partnering with the grace of God, trusting him, and seeking to keep a soft heart. This is why it's situated in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he's getting at, Matthew 19. We must recognize the propensities towards hardness in our own hearts and ask him to tenderize us as we consistently come to him with a spirit of prayer and humble obedience. Again, if we find ourselves in weird places where we're just like looking at the quote-unquote exceptions or what what matters and doesn't matter and all that kind of stuff, those can get really tricky in our hearts and uh, give evidence to uh, hardness. And the, the reason I'm saying that is I heard a story from a pastor one time where they were talking about walking through a hard situation and uh, it came to light later that the wife had actually in really nefarious ways uh, sought to... Um, 
trip the husband into sexual infidelity so that she could have the right grounds, right? Like, this isn't what's going on when Jesus is putting these in front of us. He's inviting us to walk before him with a tender and soft heart and say, I want to be submitted to your ways. Would you come and orient me around what you call good and right and whole and beautiful? I love your ways. Would you shape me? That's done. We, we long for a, a soft heart in the midst of that. And as we've said a couple times, hard words make soft hearts. This is why Jesus doesn't back down. Letter C, this is the third principle. Marriage can become a testing ground. Marriage can be a primary testing ground and producer or cultivator of the Beatitudes in the life of a believer. Hey, when we're married, we're quickly brought face to face with the realities of our own sin and our desperate need. That's poverty of spirit. Right? We mourn over our sins and the sins of others. We long for places where God's righteousness and his mercy and his peace would abound. I want to read you this quote. I read this this week. This is from a missionary named E. Stanley Jones, and he wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says in this context. He says, the door of the divorce court is not the only way open to the Christian. There is still open to him the door of using pain and turning every impediment into an instrument and using strained relationships as we use the tightening of the strings of a violin to bring out finer music. This this is going to hit. Many a man or woman has climbed to sainthood over the rough path of an incompatible marriage. There's an invitation even in the difficult places, to be conformed to the image of Jesus in that spot. Letter D, God loves marriage. This is an inverse of the declaration. I I skipped over it earlier in Malachi 2.16, where God uh, declares to his people who had, again, laxed the boundaries and were uh, violating marriage covenants. And he, he says, I hate divorce. This is not my heart. That's not my intention. The inverse of that is that God loves marriage. God's heart is for marriage. And the normative expression, the normative reality will be that God over time brings peace and grace and restoration to those who call on his name. The fourth thing or fifth thing, God's provision. We must be the type of people that believe God will provide sufficient grace or sustaining strength, that's what it means, to walk in obedience to his commandments. That is clear from the Bible. If Jesus invites us to something, he will provide. He will provide. He will provide in difficult times in marriages. He will provide in places where we're trying to navigate what this means in our life. He will provide as people walk through divorce and long to stay tender and alive to God. He will provide. If we set our hearts to obey him, he will give us his strength and grace. And lastly, we must remember and live in and rejoice in God's forgiveness and redemption. 
God's grace is sufficient to forgive, redeem, restore, and beautify lives and families, even in spite of our sin. Even when we're willful in our sin, when we're ignorant in our sin, when we're the ones doing the sinning, when the sinning's done against us, God redeems and restores. He is faithful to pour out mercy and grace and abundance of his provision in and through Jesus Christ. This is the glorious reality of the gospel. He takes all sorts of destructive things that we do and brings restoration, brings life, brings peace, brings joy, brings fullness, right? This is what God does. He doesn't have any other material to work with. He doesn't have any other kind of material. He's not waiting for the person who got it all right, who had the perfect marriage, who did all these things, who never ever struggled and sinned. He came and found us right where we were. And he said, I want you, come and follow me. We have to delight in that, rejoice in that, live up in that. I want you to hear this this morning. If you've walked through this in your life or walked through this with someone else, Divorce does not put somebody outside the reach of God's forgiveness, mercy, and power of redemption. It's not like some unforgivable sin in the economy of God. How do I know this? Go to John chapter 4. The first evangelist outside of the 12 apostles is this Samaritan woman who Jesus shows up in the middle of the day when she's getting away from the shame of the people because of her life. And she's sitting at the well and Jesus looks her in the face, knowing what she really needs is eternal living water. And he goes, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to go call your husband. And she goes, well, there's a problem with that. And he goes, well, you've actually had five. And the man you're with right now isn't your husband. And she's welcomed into receiving this unbelievable, scandalous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's commissioned to go and tell everybody about it. She goes and makes disciples of all of the people of Samaria, of the, her town. God's redeeming power is beautiful. It is beautiful, it is abundant, and it is provided in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to pray over us, and then we're going to come to the table and delight in the forgiveness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we are yours. God, we ask that you would minister to us even as we respond. God, I ask that this morning we would uh, find grace right where we are. Like I prayed at the beginning, you know every heart in the room, you know what everyone needs. Would you move and minister among us, Jesus? Would you by your spirit minister among us? God, I ask that there would be places um, 
that because of this word this morning, there would be people whose hearts would um, turn and repent and humble themselves. I ask that this morning there would be uh, places where people rejoice newly in your grace. God, would you, would you strengthen our um, expressions of marriage in this family? Would you protect them? Not strengthen them as some like Hollywood vision of love and completion. God, would you make us self-giving, patient, kind, long-suffering, bearing all things, believing all things, enduring all things, not rejoicing in wrongs, not keeping a record of wrongs, loving the truth. God, would you make us that kind of people? Would you make our marriages that kind of love, the love that you have? Would you give strength for that this morning? Would you give grace for that this morning? God, I ask for those in the room who have walked through the pain of divorce. God, would you bring healing? Would you bring your tenderness and your love? Would you refresh and restore and redeem and renew? God, for families, would you build up and strengthen? God, would you do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, more than we could ask or presume to ask you for. But just out of the sheer grace of your soul, would you do that? Lord, we love you. We honor you. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Would you take and eat of this? And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he passed it around and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, shed, poured out, spilled for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. If you look to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation this morning, for your wholeness, for your uh, standing before God, for your righteousness, I want to invite that you come and take this meal with us. This meal is open to any and all who call on Jesus' name. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle and in the balcony. And a gluten-free, allergy-free to my right, to your left. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we want to ask that you not come take this meal. This meal is a signifier of the reality that we put our faith in. This, this meal doesn't afford us something before God. It doesn't earn us something before God. It points to the man, Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection as our only hope before God. And so if that's you, don't feel pressure to come and, and, and do some ritual with us. Stay in your seat and maybe ask God to meet you this morning, to speak to you, to open your eyes. Uh, but, but for those who are coming, we're going to respond through song, uh, through the, the table this morning. And as every week, we've got ministers in the room that would love to pray with you, pray for you, uh, pray for your marriage, pray for God to strengthen you, pray for God to heal you, to uh, restore you and renew you. So servers, you're welcome to come forward. Uh, when they get settled in, 
we'll, uh, we'll begin to respond by coming and receiving the elements. Amen.